You may be seated. Well, I invite you to take up your personal copies of God's Word and turn with me to the minor prophet of Jonah. If you're not familiar where that is in your Bible, it'll just be a handful of pages before the New Testament, depending on your Bible. We're going to be picking up our reading of Jonah from the middle of the book, the first two chapters. I'm assuming you're well familiar with that Jonah is commissioned by God. He uh, is told to go to Nineveh, which we could say is this way. And then he says, I don't want to go that way for various reasons. And he goes the opposite way. As he's fleeing from his commission, we see him being uh, swallowed up uh, by a great fish and in the belly of the great fish for a few days. And then he's vomited back out on the shore where we're going to be picking up our story uh, this evening. And so let's again give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to be focusing on Jonah chapter 3, but I'm going to start the reading in Jonah chapter 2, looking at verse 10 through the end of chapter 3. Here again, the living and active word of God. And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days! Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, when we consider what we just read of Nineveh, we can only attribute that to the power of your Spirit. And so what we're about to partake of in hearing of your word we just as much need your spirit today. We need you to help us understand what is being spoken here. Enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and soften our hearts. Raise our affections for our Lord and Savior Jesus. We ask for your blessing upon the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2004, a little girl named uh, Tilly Smith went to visit uh, a local beach. Uh, she was traveling with her family. She was visiting the nation of Thailand. A couple weeks before she went to Thailand in one of her classes at school, 
She was learning about tsunamis. She was learning about some of the warning signs that precede them. And so when she arrived at the beach, it was like any other day. There was nothing unique about this day. There was nothing uh, that would seem strange or off. And so as her family and about 100 other individuals were enjoying a nice day on the beach, suddenly she noticed that water started receding back into the ocean, which is a classic sign that a tsunami is coming. And so Tilly knew exactly what was going on. She knew that this was uh, only moments of time before this water was going to rush across the shoreline, rush uh, into everyone that she was with and her family. And so she went and she warned everyone on the beach to get off. She went back to the hotel. She told uh, what was coming. That was, uh, the hotel was right along the shoreline. And so all the 100 people were able to be evacuated off of the beach. They were able to get to the uh, hotel, to get to the, the rooftop. And this was one of the very few locations in Thailand where the tsunami hit that there was no casualties. And so no one would have enjoyed hearing this message. No one, no one would have been excited to hear that there's a tsunami coming and, uh, and ruining their day and potentially even ending their life. But consider this. What if she said nothing? What if she knew exactly what was going to happen? She knew the signs of, of the, the tsunami that was coming, and she decided maybe just to run away herself. Maybe didn't even tell her family. She just went to a high tower, went to the hotel, stood there patiently waited while the tsunami came and destroyed those who were on the beach. If you were one of those people, what would you think of her? That she knew what was going to happen. Would you not want to be warned of the tsunami that was coming? In our scripture this evening, we have a more terrifying warning. We have a warning that's not just for the city of Nineveh. We have a warning that's also for us today in this city, where we have uh, a city and a people who have not bowed the knee to Christ. And so we need to be warned that the wrath of God, apart from Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is coming like a tsunami. It's coming quickly. It's coming pointedly. And without fleeing to the high tower of Jesus Christ, it will sweep over everyone who is on the shoreline, who stands with the waves coming directly at them. This warning is not meant to be an end in and of itself. Warnings in scriptures are always meant to lead us to that road of salvation. It's like you're driving on the highway, and suddenly you see a sign that says, road closed ahead. That sign is there to warn you about what's ahead, and that so you would stop in your tracks and turn around and go in the opposite direction. When we consider the Ninevites, we remember just how evil they were. Let me just read you one quote from an Assyrian scholar. They said about Assyria, Assyria has as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Nineveh, this city that received grace and mercy from God, is historically one of the most violent and aggressive nations that we have ever known uh, on record. And this is what makes their conversion all the more glorious. But before we consider the people of Nineveh, first we need to consider uh, this prophet of God and us within this covenant community. And so firstly, this evening, Christ warns you against presumption. Christ warns you against presumption. After Jonah was uh, miraculously preserved in the belly of the fish, he was 
vomited out back onto dry land. And this is one of the only times uh, that we see a prophet recommissioned in the way that Jonah was recommissioned. The natural working of God dealing with his people in the Old Testament is that if they obeyed God, they'd be blessed by God. If a prophet would disobey or do something like Jonah, oftentimes a judgment would come upon them, and sometimes we never hear from that prophet again. And so when we come across this second chance for Jonah, it really ought to cause in us an awe and wonder of God's grace. The Lord was by no means obligated to recommission Jonah. Jonah forfeited his office as a prophet, and he fled away from what God was calling him to, to go to the chief enemy of Israel at the time, Nineveh. The prophets of God in the ancient community were given this most high calling. They were to display who God was to people, not just with their, their, their mouth, with the words that they would speak, but also with their conduct, with how they lived their life. They were to represent God and his holiness to people. And because of how familiar Jonah was with the law of God, he would be held to a higher standard. And yet, uh, we see God having mercy upon him. And to give just one example of how unique this is, think about uh, Moses in the Old Testament. Think about in Numbers 20 when he is told by God to simply speak to the rock. The water would flow from it. And what did he do? He didn't speak to the rock. He said, you rebellious and stiff-necked people. And he beat the rock twice with his staff. And he dishonored the holiness of the Lord. God said to him, for this reason, you're not going to be able to enter into the promised land. You're going to only be able to see it from afar. And Moses has this conversation with God. He wants to see, is there any way I can still get in? Would you, would you still let me go into the promised land? And God tells him to stop asking. You're not going to go in. You've, you've uh, disobeyed me. You've tarnished my, my character to the people. And it has to be known that you cannot enter this promised land. And so Jonah is receiving the grace of God, but that's not originally what he wanted. Jonah wanted to die more than he wanted to obey God and bring the word to Nineveh. And God is the Almighty who rules, rules every atom in the universe. And instead of giving Jonah exactly what he wanted in, his, in the death that he wished for, the sovereign Lord remarkably uses Jonah's rebellion to fulfill an even greater purpose. Jonah was being prepared by God to go to Nineveh, even while in a state of rebellion. Consider his rebellion, what it produced. Not only do we see the, the people of Nineveh being saved, but if you look back or think back to chapter 1, you see Gentiles uh, on, a, on a ship, sailors being saved. They never perhaps would have come to know about Yahweh and his great power and that he is the Lord of, of the, the earth and the water. And God saved those men as well because of Jonah's rebellion, or in spite of, we might say, of Jonah's rebellion. And so there's two applications for us that we need to take uh, from Jonah's second chance that we see here. The first is an encouragement. God is gracious. God's covenant community, he is often lavishing his loving kindness and his mercy upon us. He often takes those saints, uh, those sins we uh, so freely commit, and he uses them to grow us somehow in our sanctification, in our, in our ridding of sin, in our growing in our, our likeness to Christ. And so what you can see about God in Jonah's story is that the Lord is able to use the weakest, 
frailest, most pitiful human vessels for his own glory. Christ is able to take you with all of your baggage, all of your troubles, and turn it for good. Paul writes in Romans 5.20, that passage that is so sweet and beautiful, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so when you particularly think of maybe evangelism, you think about that in your life, you think about maybe you stumbled over your words or you just didn't do a good job presenting uh, the gospel, know that God is able to work through your weakness. And we show up to the Lord with only our sin, and in Christ Jesus we receive mercy. And so that's the first point of application, but we need to consider, secondly, uh, a second point of application from Jonah's second chance. And this is where the first point of the the sermon comes from. Uh, Jonah ought to have uh, received... um, Jonah ought to serve as a warning against presumption. Again, throughout the Old Testament prophets, we never see anything like Jonah uh, being done where he's recommissioned in this manner. When you look at the New Testament canon, you see Paul talking about this same warning that we have, not to presume on the grace of God. And so keep your finger in Jonah. I want you to see for yourself where I'm getting this idea from. Turn forward to Romans 2. I'm going to read a couple verses from there. We're going to see Paul warning us against presuming on the grace of God. He says in Romans 2, verses 3 to 6, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And so, brothers and sisters, are you presuming on God's mercy today? Are you presuming that uh, one day in the future you'll give your life to Christ, you'll, you'll serve Christ uh, as your master? Are you thinking that when that day comes, your heart will be ready, your heart will be softened to embrace Jesus Christ? Are you presuming that God's grace will, will be there when you finally are desiring to give your sin to God? How do you know that day would ever come that you would actually give your sin over to God? Or perhaps you pray prayers like St. Augustine, who said, Lord, give me chastity and give me abstinence, but not yet. Do not allow another day to go by before grabbing hold of Christ's robe and pleading with him for mercy. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than all those desires that you have in your heart that you run to and flee to thinking that they will satisfy It's better to be a servant of Jesus Christ on this earth than to be the greatest king, than to have rule and authority over every nation, to have every single person alive be your subject. What would await you both both now and in eternity would only be sin, misery, and hell. And while today is still called today, turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. Don't put it off another day. Don't put it off another Lord's Day, another sermon that you might hear. Come today and be saved. The overwhelming grace that God has given to Jonah produces 
its intended goal when he arrives at Nineveh and he proclaims uh, his word. And so this leads us into our second point. The means by which God warns the Ninevites and us against presumption uh, of God's continued grace is through the proclamations of his word. And so secondly, Christ warns you with proclamations. When Jonah gets spit out on the shore, we don't exactly know where that is. He's not spit out directly on Assyria. If you were to look on a map, he would have had to travel at least at the very minimum 500 miles. This would be a process that would take him at least two, three, four weeks to get there on foot. So during that time, he's going to have a lot of time to think, a lot of time to process the message that he either had already received or would receive when he got to Nineveh. The text isn't exactly clear there. But he gets to Nineveh. It's a city that was a three-day journey. And he enters in the city one day, and he proclaims the word of God. And so there's two things we need to consider about this proclamation. First, the proclamation itself, and then the prophet who made the proclamation. It's important to know that this proclamation and this word, it wasn't fashioned by Jonah. He didn't come up with, with it himself. This was a word given to him by God to speak to these people. And of all the sermons in the Bible, there's none shorter than Jonah's. All we have recorded in the text is five Hebrew words. In our English Bible, in the ESV, we have eight words. All he says in verse 4, as he goes into the city, he proclaims, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The little amount of revelation in that sermon to the people of Nineveh is staggering for their response. At just five Hebrew words, the city of Nineveh responds with nothing short of a God-wrought miracle. Jonah doesn't tell the people why they're going to be overthrown. He doesn't tell the people what they have to do in order to not be overthrown. There's no call for repentance. There's no call for faith. There's no even direction from which God this is coming from. There's no reason why they should ever listen to Jonah. He didn't perform any great acts or do anything that would validate his message. He simply just speaks those five Hebrew words. And so that's the proclamation. That's the sermon. Next, consider the, the miserable condition of the prophet's heart. We see in chapter 4, if, you're, if you still have your Bibles open, we see in verses 2 to 4, uh, Jonah's heart towards these people. Listen to this. Listen how God, uh, Jonah feels about these people. He says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Friends, behold your God. The character of God is so obvious, it's so well known to Jonah in his mind, that he knows that if he goes to Nineveh and he proclaims this message, and the people show the slightest ounce of repentance and sorrow for what they've done, that God would have mercy and he would relent. 
Consider Jonah's hatred for these men, women, and people whom he shares the word of God with. He doesn't want them to come and be saved. Their salvation could mean destruction for Jonah's nation, a destruction for the temple, the church that he would go to, for his family. And in Jonah's mind, salvation for the enemies of God. Again, that's who these Ninevites are. They're the chief enemy of God's people. The, the salvation for these people is unjustified. It's dangerous. And Jonah has a right to have these fears. We see in 722 that these Ninevites, these Assyrians, they are the ones who come and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. But oh, how pleased God was to display to you his saving grace through this miserable prophet Jonah and his sermon. The prophet could have not have said less, and his heart could not have been farther from these people. And this takes us into our last point for this evening, and it's one that you need to remember when you, at times, pitifully share Christ with others. Thirdly, Christ warned you, in power. Listen again to these verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Think about this king and how he's going to respond in all of the people. This is one of the most powerful kingdoms and empires on the face of the earth at this time. Verse 5 and following says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You need to see here that the revival that broke out in Nineveh had nothing to do with Jonah's affluence, with his attire, with how charismatic he was. But the effectiveness of Jonah's proclamation is due solely and uh, entirely to the power of God alone. Five words, logically speaking, should not be enough to convert 120,000 souls. He's a foreigner. He's not one of them. It's, it's unthinkable that a foreigner would come to this great empire city of Nineveh, stand on a street corner, tell them that they're going to be destroyed, and then have them respond in this manner with such a unison of fear and faith. Only a divine supernatural in intervention into the hearts of men is capable of such a feat. And despite Jonah's message lacking as much as it did, God was pleased to penetrate and pierce the hearts of these people, to take out their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. 120,000 people, including the king and government officials, and countless animals nonetheless, throw themselves at the feet of God, begging for his mercy. The scripture elsewhere affirms that this repentance is a supernatural work of God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 25, and he's referring to those who are actively opposing the gospel. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, it's God in heaven who grants people repentance. It's not you or I. Whether from the pulpit or from your cubicle, we are simply vessels like Jonah. God is always the main actor. He is always the one doing the work of conversion, and yet he's using us, weak, pitiful, lowly creatures, sinful creatures that we are. Consider even further the difference of revelation that Christ gave in his sermons and Jonah. If you had to compare the two, it would be like finding a needle in a haystack. Jonah's sermon would be the needle, the haystack, and all that was in it would be Christ's sermons and all that he did. Christ was speaking to the covenant people of God. He was speaking to a people that were expecting the Messiah. He fulfilled countless prophecies. He performed so many miracles and so many works that the Gospel of John ends with the Apostle writing, the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written if Christ's works were recorded. Then Christ is crucified. He dies and is buried, and is buried in a tomb for three days, and then he rises from the dead. And after Christ spends time appearing to hundreds of people, confirming his resurrection from the dead, he ascends to heaven in Acts 1. And then, when we get to Acts 2, we don't see 120,000 people in the upper room praying. We see 120. God has given you his word that gives you truth after truth of who you are as a fallen man in need of redemption, and warning after warning about what awaits you if you do not place your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And all these warnings of the coming judgment that awaits sinners is the reason that the gospel is called good news. Gospel is good news because we get to escape from the coming tsunami of God's wrath that is coming upon the world. The gospel is good news because it provides you with the sweetest thing you could possibly ever experience, the sweetest thing you could ever uh, taste and enjoy, communion with God. And when we get done with this in a few moments, we're going to be invited to the table where Christ is going to feed us, where we're going to feast upon Christ in the sacrament of, um, with the elements of the bread and the wine. And so just as there was judgment to come upon Nineveh for their sin, so too will judgment uh, come upon the sin of this increasingly godless city that we live in. But the good news is that you can escape God's judgment by fleeing to Christ. Again, all that are exposed on that day will be swept away as the waters of vengeance and judgment sweep over the land. The Father in heaven has provided you this high tower that can withstand any storm, any tsunami, any earthquake, any kind of disaster that could come upon the face of the earth. You flee to this high tower of Christ and you will be saved. And so, friends, as you think about this warning that we see here that's for Nineveh and for us, it ought to stir in us thanksgiving in our hearts to God. It's because of God's deep, deep love that he has for this fallen world that he warned you in love. He warned you so that you might seek and receive God's mercy and his grace. 
There's one final application that we need to make from this text. You need to know that the efficacy, the effectiveness of the gospel, of sharing it, does not depend upon you. The efficacy of the gospel and sharing it does not depend upon you. Whether you're sharing Christ in this church or in the streets, you can rest in the fact that God's sheep will hear his voice as you open your mouth and share this good news about Jesus Christ. The power of conversion and the power that lies behind the building up of the saints does not rely upon you, but upon the living God, the Holy Spirit, working through you. The story of Jonah ought to work on all those those errors that we have in our hearts. Maybe your heart tells you, you're not qualified to share Christ with someone. You're not a pastor. You're not someone who has an office in the church. You're not qualified for this. Or maybe your heart tells you you're disqualified to share Christ with others because of a sin that you committed last night or this morning or 10 years ago. But friends, when you hear those words, when those, those feelings arise in your heart, you need to know that it's not the good shepherd speaking those things, but it's the father of lies who wants nothing more than to you to have this good news like Tilly Smith standing on the shoreline knowing about the tsunami that's coming and keep it all for yourself. That's what the devil wants. Friends, be made a fool for the sake of Christ. Even if you say all the right words and do all the right things, everything is perfect in your gospel presentation, however that that looks like and it comes. If there's not conversion... If the Lord doesn't give them a new heart, they're going to think you're a fool no matter what, no matter how perfect or faulty your presentation is. So be bold and share Christ's name with others. Let your love for the glorious praise of Christ's name and the love for sinners awaiting hell be what drives you to share Christ. All it took for this massive city like Nineveh to be converted and turn from their sin was five words. And if the Lord can do that through the prophet Jonah, who spoke so little, who had so much disdain for the people that he was speaking to, the Lord is able to work through you. May God be pleased to do so if you are outside of Christ this evening. Would he break into your heart? Would he give you a new heart? Would you be made alive tonight? Let's pray. Father, we are entirely dependent upon you for the next breath that we're going to take. We so often live this life as if we are independent and don't need you, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, you said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from you, we cannot share the gospel. Apart from you, we cannot uh, be bold enough and courageous enough to love our enemies but we thank you that in you, Jesus Christ, you have provided everything that we need for this life. We thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. Help us to be bold and to consider your glorious name in evangelism and to share Christ with the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.